The things that are not random are found where we are today in Romans chapter 13. We made it past 12. Go team. Yay. Woo. (laughs) So, which I was thinking this week, I'm going to be serious today because I had way too much fun with chapter 12. Yeah, don't give me that look. We all know I'm kidding. So we will try to have fun for this. This is, today is going to be fun, at least, at least for me though, because we get to tackle something that is approaching the top of the list for most abused Bible verses. So like, you know what the number one most abused Bible verse is, right? It, it's, it's Matthew 7, it's Matthew 7, 1, judge not. And they all know it in King James, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged. We got to break out that ye. Just add an F to some of your words and you're into the King James, right? So everybody knows that one. A close second in the modern evangelical world, though, is Romans 13. The reason it is becoming abused is because, well, humanity is doing to what we do to every Bible verse. So let's stop for a second. The reason why today is going to be fun for me is today is Bible Nerd Day. Today is a lesson in hermeneutics, and you said what? So hermeneutics is the way that a Bible text, the way that a text in and of itself is interpreted, making sure that it's done rightly. Now, I haven't even read a Bible verse, and I'm coming around. You know you're in trouble today, okay? What's the first rule of understanding your Bible? It's, It's similar to the first rule of real estate. So what's the first rule of real estate? Location, 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 right? The first rule for understanding your Bible is context context, context. You cannot just pull a Bible verse out kicking and screaming and be like, look, 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 I got one. Here's what it means to me. And that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Romans 13 is a great example of that. Now, in order to make sure we understand our context, for all of you math people, what comes before 13? 12. And I warned you all through chapter 12 that you can't understand Romans 12 unless you first understand what? Romans 1 through 11. The therefore of, tra- of Romans 12, 1 is built on the entirety of 1 through 11, which is what? The understanding of the gospel, the understanding of who God is, what's wrong with humanity, and how God, not people, are fixing that. In light of that gospel transformation, in light of his sovereign rule, in light of your hope of the future kingdom that is secure by his work, you are to then live like this. If you forget that, then you can make the Bible mean all sorts of insanity that it was never, ever meant to mean. So as we dive into this, there are already guardrails in place. Namely, something we covered last week that I already made mention to in our trivia time. Your life is to be a life of what? Worship. You don't engage in worship. You are worship. Of who? Of God. Your life is lived as an offering. To who? To God. Therefore, everything that you do and every advice that is given and every, uh, every precept that is handed down from this point forward should be put between those bumper rails, right? That I live a life of worship unto God, giving myself as an offering unto God, pleasing in his sight because he has redeemed me, because he has strengthened me, because he is preserving me for a future kingdom. So with that warning said, let's have some fun and dive into Romans chapter 13, verse 1. We'll get through all seven, but we got to start at number one, obviously. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Well, that just took all the fun out of life, didn't it? <laughs> now, pause for a second, though, and ask, what's the, what's the important question? Anytime you get a command like that, what question should you ask next? But, but why? Why? Because Paul said so. Okay, that's probably a good reason most of the time, but is that the only reason your Bible ever gives you? No. So, Paul said so for reasons. What might his reasons have possibly been? Go back to Romans twelve eighteen. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We mentioned this last time when we covered this, 1 Thessalonians 5. See that no one repays another with e- for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That's easy. Took a prior understanding. Paul's now building on that and applying it not just to your small world, not just to your church world, but to the world in general. So every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So 
Paul doesn't just build on what he said previously. He gives you the why. This is why I always tell you to ask for it because your Bible is actually interested in giving it to you. And what is the why? Well, who runs this place? God does. Does God look down at your government and go, can you believe what these people did? Can you believe who they put in charge down there? I mean, what were they thinking? You say that. (laughs) But God is never in heaven saying that. He's not like, they voted for what? They elected who? That king died? When did that happen? Why does no one tell me these things? Like, this is not your God who's sitting in heaven. If, if it was, then, well, he wouldn't be God, and so therefore he's not, so I don't have to cover this. And again, that's not something that Paul has pulled out of thin air. That's an understanding of God in the world built on the Old Testament as well. Proverbs 21. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And believe me, you're wishing he turned it some other places some of the times, but always remember who runs this place. Psalm 2, we've probably argued about this before, my favorite psalm. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast their, their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he will speak to them in his anger, terrify them in his fury, and say, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, you think governments are running the place. You think earthly rulers are running the place. They are not. This is one of those things we always get twisted as we stop on level two and go, well, there's me in the places where I have authority. There's the government in the places they have authority. And then somewhere else there's God. No, 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 no. God runs and rules all of this place, all of those layers. So if you, if you have a complaint with the planet, I'll be honest with you. Who should the complaint go to? Should go to God. Well, you have a, uh, a problem with how things are running. You would like them to be different. I agree most of the time. Take that petition to God. This is one of the reasons you're called to prayer is that you're actually petitioning the one who has power to do something. Because, wait for it, sinful people running a sinful government sinfully will change when? Well, but they will. When what happens? When they are changed from the inside out. Now, who does that sort of changing? God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the proclamation of his gospel, Romans 10, remember? So all of, the, all of this is laying down. When you look at the world and go, our leadership stinks. I get it. How do you get better leadership? You need better people in leadership, which means we need better people. So what should you do? Yeah. Proclaim the gospel. Make disciples wherever you have influence, wherever you have opportunity, and then pray and beseech God that, you know, I don't get to go work in that field over there, so what do I need him to do? Need him to send a worker over there, and if I can't go, then find someone who can or hope that God can, which again leaves me calling out and praying to God. Now, just real quick, this is not unique in the New Testament either. Paul does not stand alone here. 1 Peter chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, before we go too much farther down the road, what are the guardrails that have still been put up? That you, being subjected to the governing authorities, understand that it is God who rules and reigns as you do what? Live your life as an offering unto God, pleasing in his sight, engaging in worship always. So, be in subjection to the government as you worship and serve God in every aspect of your daily life. I remind you of that because, let's be honest, do those two objectives occasionally run into each other? Like head first in 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 an evil train wreck? Yes, yes they do. Now Christian, when they do, what do you do? Hold that thought. (laughs) We're coming, we're coming. We're we're just not getting there yet. Second, uh, verse two. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. We'll pause right there. So, Fighting rightful authority is to fight God. And our duh of the day, the dumbest thing I'll say all day, you do not want to be in the position of fighting against God. And all God's people said, yup. (laughs) Why not? Because you're supposed to be living as an offering unto God, 
engaged in worship. In other words, you're supposed to be living a life that is sanctified by the Spirit. So things like 1 Timothy 2. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings may be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. See, why do you want to pray for your rulers? Why do you want to pray for your leadership? What's Paul's, what's Paul's advice to Timothy? Pray for them so they will leave you alone. <laughs> so that you can do what? Get about the business of living your life as an offering unto God and engaging in worship daily without anybody, you know, tinkering with your life from the outside. First Thessalonians 4. God has called us for this, I'm sorry, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He tells Titus chapter three, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? Because what we covered a couple weeks ago, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, did you catch the caveat that I put on this when I finished reading the verse? So, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So I told you what? Fighting rightful authority is to fight against God. What's the caveat? What's the little carve out? Uh, you, so you, you're paying attention. Look at that. My wife listened to me. Write that down. <laughs> Gotta give her a hard time every chance I get. <clears throat> Obey, disobeying rightful authority is to disobey God. So that's an issue. So we've got some guardrails as we serve God. We've got to understand authority as it is rightfully placed. So you've got a couple of breadcrumbs. All will be made clear very soon, grasshopper. Be patient with me. We're getting there. So second half of verse two. So therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Well, well Why? Well, because they've been fighting against who? God. And in a just universe, don't you want the people fighting against God to be defeated? Well, no, but don't you want that? So, like, fast forward to the end of your Bible. Right? So you get to Revelation 19. Jesus comes down, white horse, sash, you know, flaming fire eyes, you know, sword, the whole bit, right? And the armies of Christ are assembled on one side, and the armies of everybody else are assembled on the other side. What side do you want to be on? Yeah, I want to be on the side where Jesus is. I want to be over here. I don't want to be over there. I want to be over here. And always remember, how does that battle go? That's why I always laugh like when the movies try to portray this. Like, there's going to be the great battle of Armageddon. Yes, Jesus comes down. The armies assemble and Jesus goes, you lose. And everybody goes, oh man. <laughs> I really thought we had him this time, guys. <laughs> we're so close. No, no. He speaks. They lose. And then we're throwing Satan and evil into the lake of fire in chapter 20 and, you know, the new heavens and the new earth. It, it wraps up really quick, actually. It's really not that dramatic when you think about it. So you want that outcome. Like, be honest. Do you want the battle to be a little back and forth, a little touch and go? No, no. I, I, I want the God who rules and reigns to do like the ruling and the reigning thing and to wipe out sin, to wipe out Satan, to wipe out all the evil, to throw that in the fire. I want it to be done, which also means that as I look at the world around me, the people who are warring against him on the regular, I, I want this. They, they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves because justice should and must be done. Paul's already covered this, by the way, Romans 9. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now, I bring that up as an example because you look at Pharaoh in the Exodus and say what? Dude, just let him go. Like you're at plague two and a half saying what? It's, it's not worth it, man. Don't you? I've read the rest of the book. I know how this ends. Just let him go. And yet Charlton Heston walks in and proclaims, let my people go. And, and what is, oh shoot, his name just went right out of my head. Who's the bald guy? Yul Brenner, thank you. I was like, ah, oh, I had G. Gordon Liddy in my head and I know that's not right. Different bald guy. <laughs> I pictured bald men and all I had was G. Gordon Liddy's face and name in my head. It's a terrible place to be, isn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so Charlton Heston says, let my people go, and Yul Brenner goes, what? No, so it is written, so it shall be done. <laughs> and on and on and on. Why? 
because God already told Moses before that started how this was going to go, because God has put this Pharaoh in place of this nation for this time so that he would demonstrate his power. So were Moses to like, was Moses supposed to pull out his knife and like bull rush the Pharaoh? Be like, no, I said, let them go. What do you do? What did God tell you to do? That's what you do next. That's how this runs. That's why this example is so good. Romans 12. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And by the way, the reason why Paul is laying that out is because Paul's actually read his Bible in context. So go back to something like Exodus chapter 9 again. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you, I'm sorry, struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. This is, this is a piggyback of something we ended up covering a little bit in Sunday school this morning. One of the things we have to remember about our world is that the point of your Bible is not you. It's Jesus. So the work that God is engaging in is to proclaim the mercies and greatness of Christ, not you. So the the bad example that I made fun of in Sunday school is the one I always make fun of. You're not supposed to go out looking for your five smooth stones to slay the Goliaths of your life. Like you're not supposed to find the cities you need to march around so that the walls will come down so you can conquer. Those are examples of the power of God for the exaltation of Christ. They're examples of God's work for God's people as a picture of his kingdom and his accomplishment. What you're supposed to do is go out into your world now and evaluate it however it may be and say, how do I give myself as an offering of offering to God in this position? How do I give myself and engage in worship with this conversation, with this activity, with this family member, with this traffic jam, with whatever it may be? How do I honor God with who I am, with what I am? Because that's the other part of this. This is why you change. This is why you don't stop growing and maturing like when you're 22 and think you know everything. You're like, my back doesn't hurt. My feet aren't swelling. Life is good. Then you wake up one day and what happened? Why are my feet swollen and why is my back sore? Like, what did, wait, I've made this joke to you before. I realized one day, I I was like 31, 32 and I woke up one morning. I was like, I wasn't hurting when I went to bed and I wake up and now I hurt. I'm like, I can hurt myself sleeping. Oh, it's all downhill from here. (laughs) It's all downhill from here. I mean, why though? Because be honest, if you didn't have any of that, Who would you think was strong? Who would you think is mighty? Who would you think is wise? Who would you think is great? Instead, what happens? Life has a way of humbling you, and it's a mercy and a grace from God so that you will do what? Look beyond you. Look to him, because what's the point of humanity? So Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Love God and enjoy him forever. How do you do that? By actually serving and worshiping and leaning upon what he has accomplished, not what you have accomplished. That's why the difficulties, that's why the struggles, that's why the breakdowns. Like I always make a joke, I, didn't, I wasn't born with these. May 2014, I'm coming up on 10 years of these things. All of a sudden I was realizing I'm getting headaches all the time. You know I was getting headaches all the time? Because I was doing this a lot, trying to read stuff across the room. People laughed at me. I went to a lens crafters when they still did them in an hour. So I got my, got, figured out what my prescription was, you know, went and got lunch, came back, got my glasses, and put them on. It was like, oh my goodness. They thought I, I, was, I was sitting there doing this, going, wow. It was worse than I thought. Yeah, they were sitting there laughing at me. I was like, what? What's so funny? But like, people don't normally react like this. I'm like, it was weird. Stuff is like, it's blurry, and now it's not. It's blurry, and now it's not. I mean, <laughs> Cameron laughed at me. I was doing it the whole way home. I was reading road signs on the interstate going, Oh, weird. I didn't realize how annoyed. This might be why I was so annoyed in traffic. (laughs) I'm spending my entire life going like this, trying to see what exit I'm at. Like, who would have thunk it? Why does that happen? So that you will trust in God, not in you. Which means, when you're young, and you have energy, and you have no wisdom... You have to figure out a way to serve God with who you are. When you are older and you have all that wisdom and you have no energy, (laughs) you must figure out what? How in this do I serve God? When I have good health, when I have poor health, when things are good, when things are bad, when I have money, when I have no money, when the house is working, when the house is broken, 
how do I serve God in this scenario? That is how you live your life. That is how you offer yourself. And you do that with the knowledge of eternity. Who is ruling? Who is reigning? Because he is the point of all things. And as you read your Bible and you see these examples, these are not examples for you to go, well, now this is why I will. No, no, no. This is why he has. So let's, let's move from the guardrails that Romans 12 has put up. Let's move from the guardrail that I have started to put up. And let's deal with the guardrails that Paul is actively putting up. Sound like fun? Okay. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Hold on one second. My nose is deciding to be aggravating. So, those, those little breadcrumbs I was laying out, that you live your life as an offering unto God, that you serve him above all else, and that you are not to resist rightful authority, they come to full flower here. Rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. If you don't want to have to fear your government, do what? Do what's good, and what should they say? Good job. That's what they should say. That's how this should go. No. Psalm 2. O kings, show discernment. Take warning, judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, this was one of the lessons we covered way back when, I don't even know how long ago, when we were in Ecclesiastes. Solomon has what? Everything. I got money, I got wisdom, I've got houses, I've got the temple, people listen to me. I have to rule with God in mind. You don't get to just do what you want because there's coming a day when this wise king will die and who might take his place? I don't know, some doofus. Or I might be rich one day and, you know, the stock market crashes and now I'm poor the next. Eternity is what is in mind, which means Solomon is trying to warn the people that you live your life with God in mind. The rulers need to be reminded that they rule their kingdoms with God in mind. Government needs to be reminded that it governs their land, whatever, with God in mind. The minute that is forgotten, they're no longer rightful authority because what have they done? They've now stepped into God's chair and said, what about it? That's mine. You're in my seat. Get out. I would like to sit there. The warnings of scripture are, you do not war against God. So go back to our previous example in verse 2. In the scenario where you have rulers who have forgotten God, tried to usurp his authority, and then commanded you to follow them, who's warring against God again? Because as I'm following God, it's not me, it's you. What should I do? Live my life as an offering. Engage in worship every day. Lead others to do the same. Follow after God and God alone. Verse 4, because the sentence doesn't stop here. For government, for it, government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. If only that were true so often in the world. <laughs> but let's be honest. This is what it's supposed to look like. And by the way, God will use instruments to bring about his judgment. So things like Psalm 62. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. This is the warning given to Noah and family as they come off the ark. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. You saw this with, um, with Joshua in the crew going into the promised land, right? Why are they commanded to go in and wipe out the entirety of the Canaanites? Well, question first, why has it been 400 years since the promise given to Abraham and the, and the nation of Israel is going into the land? Because when Abram and God had their covenant ceremony and Abram falls asleep and God promises by himself that he will deliver, he tells Abram what? 400 years, they'll go off, they'll be enslaved. Why? Because the sin of the Canaanite is not yet complete. When it's complete, what will happen? When God's tired of dealing with it, he'll do what? He'll judge it. 
Does that always mean fire and brimstone from heaven, Sodom and Gomorrah style? No, sometimes it means what? Sending the people of God in there to do the work. And that's why they're commanded to wipe out everything because it's judgment upon this cursed people. It is the judgment of God. And to, for Israel to then fail to follow suit on that is not a mercy to the Canaanite. It's rebellion against God. You see this later on when they get to the kingdom years. Samuel commands Saul, hey, go wipe out the Amalekites, kill everything. Kill the livestock, burn the houses, kill the king, kill everybody. And Saul goes off into battle and does most of it. And then Samuel shows up and looks at Saul and goes, have you listened to the Lord's command? And Saul goes, yes, yes, yes. I've done everything that the Lord has commanded me to do. And one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible is Samuel looks at him and goes, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? <laughs> He's supposed to kill all the livestock. Samuel walks in the camp. Did you kill all the sheep? Uh-huh. <laughs> Seriously, dude, what is this? You wiped out the leadership and the rulers. Uh-huh. So why is Agag over in the corner tied up? Like, he's supposed to be dead. And then, like, one of those brutal verses in the Bible that age Samuel the prophet takes a sword and hacks him to pieces. Not Saul, which probably would have been celebrated too, but Agag. Why? Because who is disobedient? See, you think you're showing mercy to your men by giving them the spoils of war. You think you're showing mercy to the Amalekites by sparing their king. You're showing disobedience to God because what did God tell you to do? Yeah. And when God tells you to do something, and then man goes, but, run screaming from the one that said, but, and go actually listen to what God has said. Now, that little bit of instruction should enable us to have a little bit of fun this morning, and we're going to take a slight little off-ramp because this understanding of how this verse is applied in light of verses 1 and 2, in light of chapter 12, in light of chapters 11 back to 1, should make it easier to deal with the what about stuff. That always, you know, like kicks people in the rear end. So, what do you mean the what about stuff? <sighs> Things like Exodus 1. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So, they did what? So, remember Exodus 1, Pharaoh's decided there's too many Israelites, we got to get rid of them. So, what are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to institute the China one-child policy and, and get rid of all the boys, right? So, we're going to chuck them into the Nile, and the midwives are sitting there looking at each other going, you know... It's probably a bad idea to take the people of God and throw them into the river when the Pharaoh told us to. So let's not do that. <laughs> and they didn't. And Pharaoh's mad because the boys aren't being chucked into the river. And he's like, well, why aren't you throwing them to the river? Well, you see, what had happened was that these Egyptian women, or the, the, the Egyptian, the Egyptian women are, they're, they're, they're kind of weak and girly. And so they take a long time to have kids. So we have time to get there. But these Israelite women, they are like hardy Russian stock. And like, they just have kids like, so they go, call the midwife, and we go running. By the time we get there, the kid's born, and there's just nothing we can do. And Pharaoh's like, oh. And then the midwives are rewarded, and everybody goes, but they lied. Isn't lying like one of the commandments? Like, isn't that one of the things we're not supposed to do? So why are the midwives rewarded when they're lying? They're not rewarded because they lied. They're rewarded because they feared and honored God above Pharaoh. It's almost like, wait for it, all the people that get anything good from God are bad. <laughs> Not, so the midwives, they fear God above Pharaoh, demonstrating their faith in God, but they lie. So yes, they've done a bad thing. It's almost like, you know, like Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and then he has an affair with Hagar. And it's almost like David is a man after God's own heart and is a man of great faith and he sleeps with Bathsheba and then has her husband killed and then does the evil census. It's almost like Solomon is a wise man who's read the Old Testament and knows his law and yet still manages to violate half of the commandments. It's almost like Samson knows what he's supposed to be and still gets into his own pride and his own strength. It's almost like Samuel who knows the commandments and speaks against the previous prophets and speaks against Saul and can't train his kids any better than the previous generation. So it's almost like all the people People are bad. And God is passing over some of their sin because of the work that Christ will accomplish and honoring those who trust him as above the fear of the world. That's why the midwives are rewarded. They're not rewarded because they lied. They're rewarded because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Have a, have a second fun one, Joshua 2. The king of Jericho sent word to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you and have entered into your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them said, she said, yes, the men came to me. 
but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, and you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in, the, in order on the roof. Now, you know how that story goes. So her house, fun little note that everybody overlooks. Where's Rahab's house? In the wall of Jericho. So the Israelites walk around the wall, y'all, and do the whole bit and scream, and the wall falls down, except for Rahab's house. So, yeah, the whole wall comes tumbling down. No, sorry. All right, get that song out of my head. There we go. <laughs> you knew. Yeah, you knew it, and now you're doing it too. You're welcome. So God preserves the house, rescues her, brings her into the covenant people. But she lied. Like, did she forget she stuck them on the roof? She's like, you know, I put those Israelites somewhere. I mean, oh, that's right. They were on the roof. No. She's rewarded even though she lies? No. She's rewarded because she's more afraid of God than she is the rulers of the people. She's rewarded because she protects the people of God because she knows at the end of the day, whether she preserves the spies or not, what's going to happen? Yeah, God's going to come through and judge the Canaanite. God is going to establish his people and give the land as he has promised. She's rewarded because of her fear of God and her trust in God. Because again, what's the beginning of wisdom, Christian? The fear of the Lord. This is something I mentioned to you, I think it was last week or before last. Great book, I'll mention it again, Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. See, that's backwards. That's backwards. We're more afraid of what the world thinks of us more often than not than God. The constant example you get in your Old Testament is God rewarding those who are more afraid of him than they are of the people around them. And then, of course, my favorite, which is the easy one, Daniel chapter 3. Easily top five Old Testament passages for me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. So remember, what's Nebuchadnezzar's problem? I built the statue. I play the music. You worship the statue. End of discussion. You don't want to worship the statue, into the fire you go. And by the way, when I say into the fire you go, there's nobody here who can stop that. <laughs> yeah. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But, 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 but I thought they're supposed to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Always. That was not nice. They made Nebuchadnezzar feel bad. See, they hurt his feelings. That's why he threw him into the furnace. <laughs> Is that how that goes? No. Now, I made mention that Paul was not alone in this understanding. That Peter basically told you the same thing, 1 Peter 2. So, fun Bible history trivia time, right? How did Paul die? He was beheaded by his government. How did Peter die? He was crucified upside down by his government. <laughs> so the two guys in the New Testament that told you to listen to the government and do what they tell you, at some point both did what? Listened to God and said, um, no. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, we're more afraid of God than we are you. Chuck us into the fire. That's, look, you chucking us into the earthly fire is going to be way better than God chucking you into the eternal fire, just so you know. Just in case you were confused on that one, that's, we're good. So what are your guardrails? What are the caveats that are in place here? So should you be in subjection to your government? Yes. Because as much as it depends on you being at peace with all men, when your government looks at you and goes, okay, that thing you're doing, we don't like that. But, but God told us we should do it. Yeah, well, we said stop it. I, I can't. My standards are not just do what you told me blindly. My standard is honor and serve righteousness in this world because that is what God is building and doing. And by the way, that's what you're supposed to be doing. So this goes back to our making sure our definition of love is sound. Is it loving to tell you, no, 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 that sin is fine. You go indulge in that one all you want. Is that loving? No, the loving thing would be to tell you what? Stop that. It is destructive and it is harmful. It is dishonoring to God. It is a pox upon the testimony of your Savior. And you need to knock it off. That would be the loving thing. And if you can't knock it off, then you need to cry out to God to change you and strengthen you so that you can. That's the loving thing to do. So when your government comes in and goes, okay, this whole Jesus mess, we're, we've had it up to here with this. We're done. No more. Obedience is not to say, oh, our bad. We, you got this. Obedience is no, because you serve God too. At least you're supposed to. And if you don't, you might want to because there's coming a judgment because the king is on his throne and he will crush you. 
There's coming a rock that is made without hands, and it will grow, and it will consume all of the kingdoms of the earth. And if you are not careful, you will find yourself on the wrong side of that divide when he comes down with the sword and the angel and the flashing and the lightning and the whole bit. And I don't know about you, but I want to be on this side of that. See, that's the warning. That's where your obedience to God trumps any obedience to this world. Always remember, setting family against family. I, I, I got a joke this morning. I was showing Matt and Becca some coffee that I'd bought, and I get a kick out of these guys. There's a, um, there's a coffee company down in Florida, and they, all of their main coffee roasts are celebra- uh, celebrating obscure factoids about the Revolutionary War. So they have a coffee that's called Midnight Run because it celebrates um, Sybil Ludington, who's a 15-year-old girl who like, went on a Paul Revere ride for 70 miles and didn't get caught. And they decided that they, since they were Christians, they wanted to do something good. So they have a roast called Risen. And the Bible verse that they stuck on it was, I came to bring not a piece, but a sword. Because it's a reminder of sometimes the realities of this world. See, we forget that aspect of Christ because we do what? We sit there and go, well, Jesus loves and Jesus is love and he's very loving and you need to be loving because Jesus loves you and he loves everything and he's loving, loving, love, love, love. Have you gotten the message yet? Okay, yeah, but there's also judgment. There's redemption in the midst of condemnation, and the loving thing that we do is, procl- is proclaiming truth. That's also why I read this morning. Go back to um, Ecclesiastes. What's the warning from Solomon? If you have a case against the king, stand your ground. The king's powerful. He might kill you, but you're right. What should you do? Should you abandon truth just because he's a doofus? No. You should stand on truth and know that at the end of the day, it is God who judges and God who rewards his people. So Christian, let's put all of this together. You live your life as an offering unto God. That means you live all of your life as a complete offering to God at all times. Your government has been put in place by God to be an instrument of righteousness. Now, You are in a church. You have been assembled for the proclamation of the gospel, for the encouraging of the saints, for the discipleship of his people, which means we never mess that up, right? Like, we nail that at every turn. (laughs) No, and when we see our brother going astray, we say what? Hey, hey, you got a speck right here. Well, when we see the government that is supposed to be an instrument of justice going astray, we should be doing what? Shh, don't argue with them. They're in charge here. No, they're not. God is. And they serve him too. And if they don't, then the most loving, God-honoring thing I can do is to proclaim how it is wrong and how the gospel is right. Will that mean that occasionally you will sit there and say, oh, I guess I'm disobedient to the government today? Yes. Because they're wrong. And when you have a case against the king, you stand your ground and hold firm because at the end of the day, you stand on God's terms based on what he has taught because of who he is. Now, Paul doesn't end there, but he continues to add some stuff to you. So verse five, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. See, believe it or not, this is also Paul giving you another border. Because at the end of the day, who do you have to make sure you stand before? God. So government tells you, you need to do this. Mm, Okay, I probably should. Which means if you don't, whose conscience is in trouble? Yours. When they say, you need to do this. No, no, can't do that one. Then conscience demands what? That you don't. Because again, you have a standard that is given that's supposed to be informed. Things like Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So pause for a second. This is why, go back to that Bible verse that I say the world knows. This is why Jesus gives the instruction that he gives. Because you look at your brother and go, you have a speck in your eye. And your brother immediately says what? Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Oh, I do, do I, huh? No, I don't. But you know what I do? I I see that log in your eye. (laughs) And what's the instruction from Jesus? Okay. Take the log out. And then you can do what? 
Now you can see clearly. Now the excuse has been removed. Now we've chopped out the speed bump, and now we can actually deal with these things rightly. You have to answer the conscience. You have to stand rightly before God. Why do we react like that, though? Why is your first thought when everyone, anytime anyone ever tells you about sin you have committed or wrong you have done, your first thought is to blame them for something else? We both know why. Did they tell you new information when they told you about your sin? Did they tell you new information when they told you something that you had done that was wrong? No, you knew. You knew what it was. You knew why it was wrong. And you knew that when you did it, you were just hoping what? You were just hoping that nobody would bring it up. I'm not mad I did it. I'm mad I got caught, which is most of humanity. And so I lash out. In other words, I'm trying to soothe my own conscience. Holy Spirit's in the corner going, I told you this was coming. Told you this was going to happen. And didn't listen to me. And now here we are. Why? Because... This is how your conscience is working. This is what's been informed by the Spirit. This is how humanity is sanctified, by the way. So we saw an Old Testament example of this just a minute ago with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which again, I'm always contractually obligated to remind you, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Just, I figure if I keep saying that long enough, you'll remember those names. <laughs> Plus, they're cooler names. Instead of, you know, like my shack, your shack, and a bed for both, you know. Oh, come on. Make sure you're still awake over there. <laughs> But what was, why are they able to stand like that? Because their conscience is held captive to God, what he has commanded. I'm not afraid of the king. And even if I was afraid of the king, I'm more terrified of what might happen with God. I have a standard. If you want a great example of this from history, I always love, I've read this before, but it's always worth reading again. The speech of Martin Luther. When he's, they're basically going to be like, you know, we're going to kill you at the end of this, right? And he's like, can I have a day to think about it? <laughs> so basically, the, you want to talk about the height of not fair. They bring Luther in thinking, it, and he thinks they're bringing him in so they can debate the things that are in, in disagreement. What they really are going to do is they're going to lay out every book he's ever written and go, condemn that or else. Like, well, you, imagine just putting your entire life in front of you that you think is an offering unto God and your government going, you need to repudiate everything you've ever done. Yeah, I give Luther credit to be like, can I sleep on it? <laughs> oh, no, now I have another song stuck in my head, but I'm not going to sing that one either. So, <laughs> so, he asks for a night and he comes back and says this. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council, because it is as clear as the noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe nor honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Amen. <laughs> and by the way, Christian, that's where you're always supposed to stand. See, you having a conscience, you being guided by a conscience, governmental authority doesn't change that. If anything, governmental authority should drive you more to that. This is where the hard work of evaluating from Romans 12 really actually runs into the world, is that you are looking at everything. See, so Peter tells you to bring all of the thoughts captive. Is it Paul? Anyway, read. No, it's Corinthians somewhere. Read both Corinthians. Corinthians, it'll do you good. So you're supposed to bring every thought captive to Christ. You're supposed to be evaluating everything that you encounter into this world. That includes your leadership. That includes your family. That includes your friends. This is all to be evaluated. Why? This is how you avoid that random 2 a.m. conversation with yourself where, like, you wake up and think of the dumb thing you did three years ago. <laughs> See, yeah, yeah guilty. <laughs> See, how do you avoid that? By actually thinking through the things before they happen, by actually thinking through your words before you say them. So you enter out into the world. Are you subject to authority? Yes, because God has put authority on this planet. But you are subject to authority with a standard in mind. So I'll go back to something I read last week, Ephesians 5. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. So you do that, 
And by the way, I told you this before, I'll tell you this again. Ephesians, think of Ephesians kind of like the Cliff Notes version of Romans. So Ephesians 5 is kind of like your Cliff Notes of Romans 12 and 13 and 14. So <laughs> this is why, what do you do? You go out into the world and you see evil. You shine the light. You see governmental evil. You don't go, well, you know, they're really powerful and important. We should probably do what they say. Oh, king, our God is able to rescue, but even if he does not. See, that's where the standard is supposed to be because you are living your life as an offering always. Now, this little section ends with Paul answering an objection because he's reading your mind and he knows what you're thinking. And therefore, he answers your objection before you say it. Verse 6, for, be, um, for because of this, your conscience, you also pay taxes. So close. We were so close. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So, okay, let me help us all out. In other words, taxation is not theft when it is used rightly. When it is used wrongly, yell at them all you want. <laughs> And I'm serious about that. You're supposed to, when you have a case against the king, Solomon, do what? Stand your ground. When you see darkness in the world, you shine the light. When you see evil in the world, you condemn it. It doesn't matter who's partaking in that. We don't sit there walking, you know. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Where we go who we are, where we have influence. Again, this is, your, this is, the, this, this is my, one of my favorite Bible trivia questions that we all know the answer to that we all get wrong. What's the command of the Great Commission? Because you know what everybody's first thought always is? Everybody said, well, go. No, no, no. Go therefore and, here's the command, make disciples. And again, it's an infinitive. So it's not telling you, now you go there. It's, you go, go, yeah. It's like being dismissed at the end of the service. Where do you go? everywhere. Do I have to tell you where you're supposed to be going? No, you go. No. Now, okay, now you you go over here this week and that's where you mean. You go. No, just just go. Go live your lives and as you do that, make disciples, teaching them what? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and remembering that he is with us even to the end of the age. We do so rightly though. So let's be honest. Why do we all hate taxes? Do you hate taxes because they go to evil things? Or do you hate taxes because that money is not in your paycheck anymore? <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> you're really mad because you're like, but there's this number over here. But it started at that number, and that number's bigger. And you're like a kid with the cake. What do you want? I want the big piece. <laughs> I want the big piece of cake. I want the big number. I don't want the little number. I want the big number. And I'm mad because I get the little number and they took some of it. Which again, as you go into this world, remember what? The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So Paul gives you this caveat because he knows. He knows what you're thinking. He's like, well, well, if there are times when the bumper rail should be up and I don't have to listen to my government, then, you know, storm the Bastille and stop paying the taxes, right? Well, no, because you need to think through your world rightly. You need to think through your stuff rightly. You live all of your life as an offering to God, and that includes all the good and perfect gifts that have come from above and all the things that God has given to you. So again, I didn't say you had to be happy with what separates the big number from the little number in your paycheck. But if you're going to be mad about it, I am telling you to check your heart and be mad about it for the right reasons. Verse 7. Render to all what is due to them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And again, Paul does not pull that idea out of thin air, does he? Matthew 22. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Now, here's the fun part, Christian. What belongs to God? <laughs> See, that's always the reminder, which is why you live all of your life. And again, not new in the New Testament. Isaiah, 10, Isaiah I, I, oh, I'm British suddenly. We've got Isaiah. <laughs> Ask me where that just came from. Isaiah 10. Woe to those who enact, evil who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that, widows may, so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. See, why is that woe? What's, what's the judgment in Isaiah? It's the judgment from God. So you end up here where we were last week 
which is going back to Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. See, this is why, last time I'm coming around, I promise. This is why, by the way, it feels like sin in the world is a snowball going downhill. Because you look at it and be like, it just feels like they added to it and they added to it and added to it. Well, because they did. And here's why. When you forsake God and you start down this path and you are unable to go any other direction, are you going to start adding good works halfway down the road? No, because you, one, you don't want to, and two, you're not really able to. So you're going to continue to add the wickedness and the destruction and the things that lead people astray. Now, Christian, as you enter into the world, you're on a narrow road that unfortunately seems like it's running parallel to theirs because the division is down the line. But what do you do? Look at those people. Can't believe it. You know what? Just just glad we're over here and not over there. Kids, come on. (laughs) No, it's what? Hey, guys, you're going the wrong way. Because we see evil. What do we do? We condemn it. We see darkness. What should we do? We shine light. How do we do this? By making disciples. Where? I don't know. Where are you? Do you have energy? Use your energy. Do you have wisdom? Use your wisdom. Figure out who you are, where you are, and how you make disciples in this world. And by the way, don't ever confuse make disciples with just evangelism. Okay? This is the mistake we make all too often. We make everything about evangelism. No. Should you try to win the lost? Yes. Should you try to proclaim the truth and hope that people will come to Christ? Yes. Should you do that while forgetting that you actually have to build up the people that are coming behind you on the road? No. Remember, God can chew gum and walk down the street at the same time. You're supposed to be able to as well. The biggest part of your disciple work is actually strengthening the believers that you know, building up the kingdom, not necessarily always by adding to it, by strengthening those that are in it. This is a good work. And again, where's your first ministry, Christian? With who? You. It starts with you being strengthened, evaluating, encouraging those you have witnessed with to do the same, and then going out and shining that light. You hid the light under the bushel before you left the living room this morning. What can't you do with it? Probably because it's burning you, because remember the bushel, their light back in the day was a candle, so you put, put the wicker basket on the candle. Not going to end well at all, just in case you were ever wondering. So as you go and you make disciples... You proclaim goodness, you proclaim mercy, you proclaim the justice and righteousness of God because that's who you are and how you live. Will there come a point when that will run into the world? Yes. Now what? Because you told me to be at peace with them and you told me to listen to them. Yes, but fear God and keep his commandments because this is the end of all things. Because at the end of the day, you have a higher standard that you're called to. And it's the one your conscience is screaming to you about. It's the one that upholds the righteousness of Christ. It is the one that upholds his standard. It is the one that actually proclaims love to the world. And the one that actually is needed. So you fear God. You trust in him. You follow after him. And then you have to trust that he works everything else out. Because that doesn't always end well. It didn't end well for Peter. Didn't end well for Paul didn't end well for Polycarp, didn't end well for nameless and faceless thousands throughout the last 2,000 years. Not in this world, but it has ended for them gloriously in eternity because they were faithful unto the end, which means they were faithful unto the kingdom. And that's the hope that we're all striving towards. How do we get there? By trusting in God, leaning on what he has commanded, and fearing and honoring him above all else. Let's pray.